and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, obviously one of our big themes so far for the podcast and I guess for the economy overall has been the sort of like shortages and bottlenecks that uh, people have experienced across across business, across supply chains uh, in the wake of the crisis. Bottlenecks everywhere and in everything, it feels like sometimes. Um, and of course, one of those bottlenecks is in the labor market. Yeah, exactly right. Like this is, I would say, the one other sort of like big thing that we we have yet to really talk about, which is that numerous businesses, largely in leisure and hospitality, but not just that area, have uh, voiced, I I don't know if frustration is the word, but have certainly found hiring to be uh, much more difficult than they expected, especially coming out of a downturn and even uh, much more difficult than it was pre-crisis. And the economists have all kinds of theories for why. Uh, but it's clearly a phenomenon of this environment that makes this moment uh, distinct and is posing challenges to various uh, managers and bosses and companies. Yeah, so I'm obviously not in the States, so I've sort of been watching this issue from afar. Um, It's not such a big thing in Hong Kong, as far as I can tell. But I've seen some of the anecdotes about this, like, you know, signs on the front of fast food restaurants saying that they can't open today because they don't have enough employees or some of their employees didn't show up. Uh, I also know it's a very heated issue at the moment with you know, it's sort of like a classic labor versus capital kind of issue at this point with a lot of the companies blaming workers and saying they don't want to come back to work because they're afraid of getting COVID or because maybe they're getting unemployment benefits through the government. And so they don't feel compelled to go to work. And then the workers saying, well, if you really want us to come back, why don't you actually do something to encourage us and raise wages? I mean, that's the obvious thing for them to do. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting one, and I'm very very intrigued about this particular issue and how it's playing out over in the states. Yeah, exactly right. And we have seen pretty dramatic wage growth uh, in the leisure and hospitality sectors. Employers are uh, jacking up wages to bring people back, but it seems like the effect has only been marginal so far. And you know, mm-hmm. we hear from a lot of economists, and they have their charts, and they say, "Well, this the you you know here's the effect of UI, and here's the effect of childcare, and so forth." But sometimes it's also really good to actually talk to someone in the hiring process and get away from all of the theory that economists like to talk about. In fact, I think we prefer it here. It's more interesting to talk (laughs) to people who are involved in shipping or trading lumber or anything than someone with a lot of like charts and theories. We've definitely gone uh, very granular this year. Um, The other thing I was thinking, like it kind of gets into the overall topic of whether or not behavior has changed after the pandemic. Is this a fundamental shift in how people are approaching work? Like going forward, are there just going to be fewer people who want to work in hospitality for whatever reason? Or is this actually a temporary bottleneck or supply shortage that is going to eventually work itself out? Yeah. And just uh, to your point, um, there are like signs everywhere. Like not only does every place up that up has (laughs) a sign, but like you go to a grocery store and it says in advance, like, sorry for the slow service in the line. We're having every place has a warning about that. It's really wild. Anyway, let's get into it because I'm very excited. We're going to be speaking with someone who's like right in the heart 
of all this going on. We're going to be speaking with Kurt Alexander. He is the CFO at Omni Hotels, which is a uh, big hotel chain that has about 50 locations in North America, all very high end. And we're going to get into the nitty gritty of hiring and uh, operations at a uh, hotel in this environment. So, Kurt, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, good morning, Joe. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Before we get into the sort of like environment right now, you know, let's say like go back to, say, uh, August, you know, of 2019 or, or February 2020 before COVID. Why don't you just sort of like describe a little bit about labor turnover and the sort of like, you know, the labor needs and the general needs of a hotel chain like Omni? Yeah, absolutely. So pre-COVID, it was it was really a, a tough operating environment then. And COVID really magnified and accentuated a lot of the things that were going on, which I think has been common across all sectors, every pocket of life that COVID has just kind of accentuated trends that were already in place. And so pre-COVID, we had about 22,000 employees work for us. Unfortunately, over that next kind of 60 days from February to April, we got down to about 1800 people. So it was, wow. it was a pretty quick shift, but, but, you know, pre COVID just to touch on some of the, the trends and kind of things that we were seeing, we were seeing mid single digit wage growth in the hourly workforce consistently turnover of about 30% a year, again, kind of in the hourly workforce ranks and a particular need for culinary talent. Hmm. And so uh, cooks, sous chefs, et cetera, even, even kind of waiters, waitresses and the like, um, but, but mainly back of house culinary. And, and it, it was really not even a function of wages. It was more a function of skills. And so we had a lot of conversations pre-COVID about, hey, how can we kind of build our own workforce, so to speak? And, you know, we have a lot of destination resorts and, and we thought about maybe even building a culinary school and uh, working with the U.S. government on different Im immigration programs to, you know, get people to the states and train them and, and kind of, in effect, build our culinary talent. You know, food and beverage is something that we pride ourselves on at Omni. And, and, and so we, we were really thinking through ways to solve that problem in, in unique ways. And then, and then COVID hit, right? And what we have seen is, again, culinary is at the top of our list. We, we, we just can't find anybody. So just before we get um, more into the actual difficulty of finding the right people now, maybe if we step back for, for one second. So I have to confess, the, the only thing I know about the hotel industry comes from um, that book, Hotel Babylon, which I guess is really old now. Yeah. And then it was a TV show that was like on the BBC, I think, for a while. It was actually a really good TV show. But that definitely portrayed the hotel industry in a kind of like glamorous-ish light, uh, depending on what job function you were actually doing at a luxury hotel. Maybe you could just give a bit more color on the types of jobs available at hotels, uh, the types of people who typically um, might be interested in them. Like, What is the proposition of going into the hotel and leisure industry as an employee? I think that's a really good question, Tracy, and, and one that probably varies based on the position. Mm. I think that at certain kind of higher end management level positions, it is very glamorous and you're interacting with presidents and movie stars and, um, you know, kind of living this billionaire lifestyle without being a billionaire. 
I think that some of the back of the house type labor, you know, um, more, more entry level, is just really hard work. And so a steward, for example, is, is a, a job we have at every hotel and they, they clean all the dishes and they clean all the equipment and make sure that it's ready to go. And so very labor intensive, very manual, um, obviously ha- housekeeping, which I know we'll get into later, uh, is a very, again, labor intensive, just hard job, right? I mean, a, a lot of our housekeepers are cleaning 12 to 15 rooms a day. And if, if it's kind of a stayover service, in other words, you're not checking out, but you're just, you're kind of in the middle of your stay, we'll come in and make the bed and give you uh, clean towels, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and so in, in those cases, sometimes they're doing 20, uh, 20 or more rooms a day, right? So it, it's a really hard job and, and glamorous and kind of posh would not be adjectives to describe it. <laughs> you know, I like the way you put that living the billionaire lifestyle temporary. I never really thought about it or articulated that way. But now that I think about it, I guess that is exactly what's sort of fun about staying in a nice hotel is just like that brief. It's a very different life. And I think living the brief foray into the billionaire lifestyle is a way to put it. I don't know if I've ever spent a night at an Omni, but I've been to the Omni in Austin. It is a very nice experience. Last question before we move to the more temporary uh, conditions. Uh, in normal times, as a, you know, and I guess as the CFO, you're in a good position to talk about this. Can you give us like the cost breakdown, like how much of the ho- of a hotel's costs are uh, labor versus other things like uh, property and so forth? Like what is how much of the uh, how much is labor? Yeah, a, a big piece. Um, so in round numbers um, in 2019, we did about two billion dollars of revenue. And our labor cost was about 750 million. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like you can do everything right. But if, if you get the labor part of the equation wrong, you're, you're going to be wrong. And of that 750 million of salaries and wages, it, it was, it's pretty consistently 80-20 between uh, kind of the management wages and then the hourly workforce. And so rough math is we have... million, $600 of hourly pre-COVID, right? In 2019. And you're right, from my seat, I sit there and say, goodness gracious, 10, 15, 20, 30% hourly wage increases on a $600 million number starts to get pretty, the numbers get pretty big, pretty quick, you know, but, but but it's not even just the hourly, we're seeing the wage pressure everywhere. So let's talk about the labor shortage then. And one of the things I've been wondering is, Maybe you could break it down for us by factors driving it, because I was just thinking about your housekeeping um, example, and I imagine that cleaning probably became even more labor intensive over the past year or so, given concerns over COVID. So I'm curious how much of the labor shortage is driven by the need for more work versus how much is driven by an actual supply issue? I guess it's classic demand versus supply, right? Yeah, no, it, it's certainly going to be a supply issue, uh, Tracy. And and it, interestingly, and, and we're not the only hotel company that has done this, but but in large measure, we have found people don't want someone else in the room during COVID. Hmm. Um, and so it's a, it's allowed us and, like I said, many other hotel brands to to really go in the opposite direction of, hey, we will provide housekeeping services if you want it. But otherwise, uh, we are going to assume that you don't want it. Hmm. 
And, and, and that has been, um, a blessing in some ways because we have been so short staffed, but in a lot of our hotels now over the summer months, you know, we're running rates that are up 20, 30% versus 2019. And then you get into kind of the operational value proposition of what am I really getting for my, for my $500 a night. And for us, we want to be able to differentiate ourselves and and give you a great experience. We can, you know, and so, so, but it's truly, a, a kind of a supply problem. And, and what we're seeing is as the demand for labor increases, there, there's just the, the supply is, is not there. Can you just talk a little bit about the experience of going from 20 uh, workforce of around 20 plus thousand to 1800. So we had the uh, crisis. We had the acute shock when basically everything shut down. And we know that numerous uh, services based companies had to dra- uh, dramatically reduce their workforce. And they received uh, some of them received PPP money. And then the people who got laid off were given expanded unemployment insurance. Can you just talk a little bit about how that worked at Omni? Like what were the sort of like basics of how government aid and the decision making work? And, you know, one thing I'm curious about is like, you know, if you could talk like, did you keep track of in contact with the workers who left or with the uh, layoffs so that, you know, thinking about reopening, just like talk about like how that whole experience went down? Yeah, it, I still have nightmares about it, I think. But, yeah. um, you know, it, it was really tough. And, you know, when it started, we had a lot of conversations around how do we just kind of keep what we have, right? In SARS and some of these other uh, airborne illness shocks, it's it's been a 90-day short-term deal that's that bounces back pretty quickly and you know at the time you're sitting there well is this going to be a 90-day thing and if so we want to hold on to as many of our workers as we can or is this going to be a a a year-long thing and i don't think anybody thought really that in our world at least that it was going to still be going on here 18 months later and and so we're we're sitting there and and we're operationally kind of pre-capex pre-debt service we were losing and kind of burning about a million dollars a day just operationally um, as occupancies dropping. And, and, and so then, then you kind of get into the question of, okay, well, we have all these, we have this operational cash burn, we have capital commitments that are kind of mid mid flight and we have debt service. And then it becomes a matter of what do we need to do to, to right size our cost structure, maybe not to the extreme, you know, but let's make some kind of prudent decisions and again, try to hold our core together. We, we tried to take as thoughtful of a, as thoughtful of an approach as we could, right? Obviously, it's it's kind of a crisis mode, and 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 everybody's going a thousand miles an hour. Um, but but we really tried to maintain the leadership ranks at all of our hotels. And as, after we kind of hit equilibrium, I guess of saying, okay, we feel like we have right sized the organization. Then it's okay. Where do we need to add back, and what are right decisions? And and kind of the magic word at the time, as y'all will remember was furlough, right? We're not, we're not terminating these people. This is just a temporary furlough. And, and, and so to answer your question, Joe, yeah, our hotel and our, our hotels and our hotel teams were keeping in touch with all these employees and still are in many cases, you know, so this is a temporary furlough in nature and, and we'd love to bring you back as soon as really the market conditions allow for it. 
And, but even then we, we made investments to bring back kind of engineers and, um, and housekeepers to kind of do what was right for the asset, which, uh, and, and for the business fundamentally, you know, repair all the broken shades and blinds and make sure all the light bulbs are changed and clean, kind of do deep cleanings on, on all the rooms and, you know, in anticipation of demand coming roaring back. And um, sadly, in some markets, you know, we did those deep cleanings and, and the sheets have accumulated dust on them. And we're gonna have to do the deep cleaning again, because just because the market is so is so anemic. But it was a very, very difficult time. And, uh, you know, a lot of hard decisions, a lot of hard conversations. Uh, I do think that uh, we treat our people better than most. It's always kind of what's the measuring stick, right? Uh, in terms of what we kind of paid them on, on their way out the door with for, for their furloughs. And, and I think that has helped us bring people back more quickly. Uh, and, you know, as a small, relatively small hotel chain, we say, you know, we can't out Marriott Marriott. Um, so what, what can we do differently? And we always say we can know our people, you know, at Marriott, you're just a number at Omni. We can know you, we can help you chart a career path and, uh, and I think that that culture and kind of that family or family orientation has helped us weather this, weather the labor storm um, again, better than most, although we, we are still being dramatically impacted by it. So can I just ask, can you give us a sort of rough idea of how much of your workforce was furloughed um, during the worst of COVID? And then I'm just curious if you know, well, I, I'm wondering what the conversations were like, uh, you know, when you're telling someone we're not letting you go, we're furloughing you temporarily, and, you know, we hope this passes as quickly as possible, what the response generally is. And then I'm also wondering if you know what people went away and, and did for that period of time. Did workers try to get alternate jobs or did they rely on, um, you know, the stimulus payments and the extra um, unemployment insurance? I think the first question was kind of what were the conversations like? And, you know, people always talk about the fog of war. I, I honestly, I've, I had several of those conversations um, and and people are just in shock. The, the person having the conversations in shock, the person kind of receiving the conversations in, in shock at the trough, I guess, or at the peak, whatever you want to say, we had about a 90% reduction in our workforce. Um, so roughly 20,000, 22,000 down to 1800. Uh, we're about 10,000 right now. And, and, and so, you know, it, it's coming back relatively quickly. Um, in terms of what people did, it really, it really varied. You know, again, we had conversations of, is it better to keep these people on payroll and, and, you know, pay them kind of a minimum wage and, you know, whatever their wage is. And, uh, and ultimately we decided that in every single state, they were better off receiving the enhanced unemployment because at the time I believe it was an extra, uh, I think it was $600 a week kind of from a federal subsidy. And then you have the state on top of that. So, you know, right now, I think that with the $300 a week in the states that have not kind of opted out, I think it works out depending on the state and kind of what they fund. It works out to about 14 to $15 an hour. And so at the $600 a week, you know, it was a 20 plus dollar an hour job um, in effect. And, and so I think a lot of people went on unemployment and I know for myself and, and maybe for y'all, but COVID has been a very introspective time of what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And I think a lot of people when, when they're receiving kind of, 
maybe in some cases more than they were making working in some of these really hard jobs on enhanced unemployment, that a lot of that introspection takes place of, wow, maybe I don't have to do that job. You know, the anecdotes that I've heard and, and, and kind of just talking to people is that people enjoy work. There's, there's a dignity in work. And, and I think we, we were created to work. And, and so people, for the most part, have gone out and gotten jobs. And, and the, the kind of the gig economy and the, the, um, the Instacarts of the world are allowing people to work when they want and make the same or better wages than they were making in our business. And, you know, and, and we're competing with the Amazons and Walmarts and targets of the world for talent. And so whereas hospitality, we lost a lot of jobs. A lot of the retail like Target, for example, they, they added jobs. I don't know if you all have been in a Target recently, but there's somebody wiping down carts and sanitizing that that job didn't exist uh, pre-COVID. And now all of a sudden that's a $15 an hour job. And so you can make $15 an hour cleaning 15 rooms uh, a day, or you can make $15 an hour cleaning carts. And, you know, I think that it starts to become pretty evident as to why it is so hard for the hospitality industry to bring people back to work. So let's talk about that further. What is, you know, we've been talking sort of big picture about uh, tight labor markets or the difficulty of hiring or the constraints of tight labor. Can you put some numbers on that? Like, what is a turnover or a quits or turnover look like churn these days? Is there a way to compare, say, like, all right, if you post a help wanted uh, notice on, say, the website or somewhere else, like how many applications you would have gotten a couple of years ago for that versus now? Like, can you just sort of like quantify basically what we're talking about with the tight labor markets? Yeah, uh, th this is a pretty interesting kind of snapshot. And it, on February 1st, 2021, we had 200 open positions in the company. Right now, we have 2,800 open positions. Wow. And in the intervening five months, we have hired over 5,000 people. Wow. <laughs> so it, you kind of, you know, you do the math and, and it's kind of hard to add up, right? But And how uh, many uh, job openings would you have had, say, like, in, you know, uh, July 2019, like in total normal time. The way I've been looking at it, Joe, is in in 2019 we hired about 4,000 people in the over the course of the year. So to replace turnover due to seasonality at some of our resorts, it's hard to kind of look at a snapshot in time. Um, but but we hired about 4,000 people in 2019, and in six months of 21, we've hired 5,000. And, but but quits and, and churn is is way up. And, and at some level, I don't even know how to quantify it because in many cases, not in many cases, in some cases, we are hiring people and they show up for a day and then they don't show up again. <laughs> Obviously, that's a quit, you know, but but they, they kind of get into it and they're like, oh, man, I do not like this job. Uh, and or and we've had a lot of conversations around this. I don't like an eight hour shift. I, I like the three or four hour shift. And, and so we're having a lot of conversations around how can we kind of break that typical eight hour shift down. And so if you want to work from eight to 11, we can utilize you. If you want to work from two to five, come on. You, you know, and so I think the breakdown of this conventional kind of work week is upon us. Um, and Tracy, to your kind of intro question, has behavior changed? In my opinion, that is a secular shift that is here to stay. You know, you kind of put on top of that the the gig economy and with Uber or Instacart, I can get paid the day after I work. 
And at Omni right now, we have 26 pay periods in a year. And so you're getting paid every other week. And, you know, so kind of this access to your earnings more quickly and work when you want. And I, I think that is a secular shift that's here to stay. And, and the, the one that we as employers really need to be responsive to. Just one other quick uh, anecdote. You know, during COVID, we started these things called uh, virtual job fairs. So what what used to happen is we'd have a in-person job fair and the kind of the big uh, meeting room at one of our hotels. We would we'd kind of reserve it for the day and flyers and Craigslist and local advertisements and obviously online. And, uh, you know, we're kind of marketing, building up this event. And then people come and, and they interview with interviewing for a housekeeping job or if they're interviewing for a front desk job or whatever it is. And they kind of meet the hiring manager and go through the interview process in person. And we started uh, virtual job fairs during COVID. And so that's a Zoom call and and you you log in and we do the same marketing, right? Flyering and uh, Craigslist, et cetera, to kind of gin up interest in this. And sadly in Austin, uh, we had a job fair where we had 500 ish reservations of people saying they were going to come and about 75 people showed up. <laughs> so, you know, you sit there and, and in a, in the typical kind of pre COVID times, you'd have 500 people come and maybe hire 200, right? So 40% yield, but when you only have 75 people show up, right. I mean, it, it, it starts to become a, a again, that supply problem is more accentuated. So I just want to press you a little bit more on this point because it's really interesting and I think very important. So you mentioned that you as a company are looking at breaking up shifts, you're holding virtual job fairs. Is there anything else you're doing to entice workers? I mean, the obvious one would be on wages, right? Are you paying more? And then secondly, what has been working for you so far? Where have you seen the most success in terms of getting people back? Yeah. Um, what are we doing? We, we're doing, we're, we're trying everything. And I think it's kind of, it's, it's been fun and it's kind of a real life science lab, right. For us to try, to try things and what is working. And we have been, uh, doing things like offering free nights to people, uh, if they come work for us and for our culinary, which I mentioned earlier is a real challenge. We've been, uh, buying a set of knives for some of the kind of the kitchen workers who join us. We are certainly paying more. We are offering trainings and uh, we've had conversations. We've not done anything in this direction yet, but around student loans, you know, is there something we can do to help people with their student loans if they come work for us? And and so we're we're trying a lot of different things. Ultimately, at the end of the day, wages uh, are probably the number one factor. Although, I would tell you and our HR team would certainly tell you that people want more than just a paycheck. And so what is the employee value proposition that we can offer? And again, it gets back to career path and um, we can know you, help you develop, get you where you want to be, help you become, you know, kind of thrive as a person and in, in, in kind of a, in a holistic manner. Those are some of the things we're doing. I think that and it's been very market dependent as to where it's been easier or harder to get labor. And so, for example, we have a hotel in Hilton Head and it has been always a notoriously difficult labor market, largely because there's just not a lot, a lot of people that live in Hilton Head full time. And so historically, that hotel has relied on 
uh, J1s and H2Bs, which are work visa programs here in the U.S. And one thing that I've not seen written about, but I think that has really been happening is a lot of the work visas have been kind of held up in the government just due to the vast uh, quantity of them. And so there's there's kind of a backlog of these visa approvals. And so typically for the summer season in Hilton Head, they'll have, you know, a couple hundred J-1 H-2B work visa employees show up and these people come back every summer. And, you know, and so it's not it's a very kind of normal thing. And in this summer, those people have not been cleared through immigration to be able to come here um, and work. And so, you know, I think that in markets like that, we could offer $50 an hour Mm -hmm. for some of our open positions. And there's just not even there's not even people that will that are able to take that job. Let me ask you a really simple question. You have 50 locations and spread out throughout the U.S. I assume that uh, some are in states that have already ended their enhanced unemployment and some that are continuing. How big of a this has been a big source of debate, and I feel like you should have some insight into this. How much has it moved the needle in terms of ease of hiring workers in the states where uh, the expanded UI has already gone away? As you guys know, this is the uh, classic debate for the last several months. Why aren't people working? And I will tell you this, and Texas is one of those states, Florida is one of those states um, that have uh, kind of opted out. And when the news broke that Florida was opting out, our application kind of increased by about 500%. Well, the day that the news broke... uh, in other words, the subsidy is still going for several weeks. And so I think it is absolutely a factor uh, that that people are not going out looking for jobs because the marginal value of going to work for $15 an hour versus being on enhanced unemployment at $15 an hour, it's a really hard value proposition. That being said, I think that there are a lot of other dynamics that are causing people not to work. I do think that COVID, you know, in hospitality, you are on the front lines interfacing with people that are coming in from around the country, around the world in some cases. And it is a risk uh, oriented job when it comes to COVID. You know, you read about childcare and, and kind of difficulties with that. And I think that is becoming less of an issue, although during COVID, it was a very real issue. We're, we're seeing we, we are seeing more traction, Joe, in, in, in the states that have ended the enhanced unemployment. Kentucky, I think, was one of the states that rolled out a we will actually pay you to go back to work. And I think that's a pretty creative uh, way for the government to really incentivize a lot of this. And and we've we've done well at our hotel in Kentucky, um, although it is still challenged even there. Right. And so I think fundamentally what I'm seeing is, is that hospitality jobs are just hard jobs. And so I, I read a stat. I think that there's like nine million people currently unemployed. Um, and I, I'm, I'm scared how many of those people want or would be willing to work in a hospitality job. I will actually tip my cap to you, Joe, and uh, to some of your colleagues at, at Bloomberg. You know, reading you all and your perspectives on this has, has informed my decision making on what we're doing with wages. I think if left to my own devices, I might say, well, let's just pay the temp company the $25 an hour that they want, because maybe this is a temporary deal with uh, enhanced unemployment and come Labor Day, the labor market's going to be awash with uh, awash with people. 
but but we've made the conscious decision that instead of paying the temp agency $25 an hour uh, to kind of have the, the contract worker, we want to control and, and in effect to have the quality control of employing our own labor. And in some cases, paying 18, 20 bucks, $22 an hour for some of these entry level jobs that, that may have been at 12, 14, $16 an hour pre-COVID. So there is one thing I wanted to ask you, and this has also become part of the, you know, emotive conversation that's going on in the States. As far as I can tell, it's also part of like a joke that goes around, which is that, you know, workers in manual jobs are told that they're going to get replaced by robots all the time. And then suddenly there's a labor shortage and the companies want them back. So I guess I'm just curious on your take on the on the automation issue is the experience of COVID and the labor shortage going to be something that pushes more companies to find different ways of automating jobs um, so as to avoid this in the future? Or has it sort of shown the importance of having human labor? Yeah, wow. Uh, for, for us, we are a people business and we are always going to be a people business. For us, it, you know, kind of the, the human touch and and the, when you check into a hotel and and you're greeted by a real person smiling, saying, welcome to the Omni. Uh, we think that's fundamentally a different experience than a, a kiosk. However, I think that what COVID is, do- is doing and what is happening with lower end wages and, and the 20 plus percent wage growth that we're seeing, it's going to make the business case for automation much more compelling. And so if you're paying somebody $12 an hour, and you amortize the cost of a, a bot, for example, at a dollar fifty or two dollars an hour. You know that's a, a, an okay r- return when you factor in all the programming, development, and everything else, and R and D in effect to make that work. But the value proposition gets a, a lot better when you're paying somebody twenty dollars an hour. You know, so I, so I think that yes, it's going to accelerate it, particularly in things like accounting and the back of the kind of the back office, whether that's hospitality or um, auto dealerships, or uh, you guys were talking about some things on odd lots that I don't even understand with DeFi, DeFi and cryptocurrency and the like. But you know, I think I think that what you're going to see across every industry is uh, kind of more automation uh, and streamlining in, in the back of the back office, and companies are going to be making different strategic decisions on a kind of guest facing as to how they want to position themselves. I'm so glad, uh, Tracy, you asked this because my my head was going in the same direction. Like, and you described it like hotels. Many of these businesses are like they're human businesses. And even, you know, for a long time, like there is not much productivity growth in a hotel, like the same way you might get from, say, like manufacturing. But are Omni hotels in some sense more productive uh, than they were? Like, how have you learned to make do with resource constraints that you haven't had that you didn't have pre-crisis. Yeah, it is incredible how efficient we are right now. And and we we had a uh kind of a planning session about a month ago and and we really had to group these efficiencies into sustainable or unsustainable efficiencies. And in many cases uh the the efficiencies that we're seeing are unsustainable. But in in some cases they're not. 
And so, you know, productivity gains of, like I mentioned earlier, not cleaning someone's room, that's enormous productivity gains. Uh, and, and, and the question then becomes, well, what does the market start to demand in terms of services? And so we've had conversations around, OK, well, you know, a big word that you'll hear in the hotel industry is cost per occupied room. Um, and, it, and it's really just all the direct costs that go into you staying uh, in a room. So obviously you have the cleaning, you know, the cost to clean the room. You have the linen and the cost to launder. You have the shampoo and soaps and everything that uh, people love to take out of the rooms and, and, and they should, uh, right? And kind of these guest supplies that, that we replenish when a room turns over. And cost per occupied room during COVID even with all the enhanced safety. So we, we were wrapping all of our remote controls and giving people sanitizing wipes and masks and everything like that. That only added about 50 cents to our cost per occupied room and, and just uh, order of magnitude. On average, our cost per occupied room is maybe 35 bucks, you know, kind of fully loaded with utilities and everything. My point is, that's not a lot. And, and we are starting to kind of roll back some of our COVID we're not wrapping our remote controls in plastic anymore. So we're kind of getting away from that. And so our cost per occupied room is going to drop. And then if you're not cleaning it, you're saving a, a ton of money there. Now, again, back to my point on what do you really want? And, and so we're having conversations around, okay, if it, if it costs us 30, 35 bucks uh, on average to clean a room, you know, maybe we give our guests choice. And so would you, would you rather have uh a 50% off a golf round or, or two drinks at the bar and free appetizer or a spa credit, whatever it is. And, you know, and so I think that what may happen there is our our costs are in effect uh, may return to pre COVID levels, but hopefully our customer experience is dramatically improved because some people quite frankly, don't care if their rooms ever clean. They don't even care if their beds made and particularly the younger traveler. And so, you know, but they, they may be more inclined to say, yeah, if you buy me two drinks at the bar and, and a free appetizer, I would love that. Uh, some of the operational efficiencies will be repurposed in other ways and, and, and hopefully other value added ways. Um, I think some of the efficiencies also, um, when you think about how we buy, will be maintained, hopefully. Now, uh, offsetting some of the commodity price increases that we've seen, et cetera. You know, but previously we would buy steak, for example, from 15 different vendors. Uh, and each chef and the local market loves that kind of their local beef vendor. And, and we, we, we've really kind of centralized a lot of our procurement and said, okay, well, let's, let's shrink the 15 beef vendors down to two or one. And, and so kind of our bargaining power uh, with vendors has improved. And, and I think our pricing's improved. Now, like I said, that's being more than offset in some cases by commodity pricing, which hopefully is a short and it's kind of short term in nature. But but that's kind of how I see the, the, the future of the hotel industry. And I do think that the Marriott's and Hilton's of the world are going to make housekeeping optional. So if you want it, you can pay for it. And, and kind of embracing the airlines bag fees uh, philosophy, particularly in maybe not in the luxury or upper upscale, but kind of in the lower uh, chain scales, I think that is going to happen, which maybe prepare yourselves and, and, uh, and your listeners for that. But, uh, but at Omni, I think we're, we're trying to think about how we can more ad- address the needs of what the market wants rather than uh, just me doing it with, with uh, the big brands.
So that's really interesting. And can I just press you on that point? Because this is something that I want to ask you about. We've been talking a lot about labor supply, not so much necessarily on the demand side, but how do you see consumer behavior shifting post-COVID? So maybe people are more flexible when it comes to having their rooms cleaned, but is there anything else that you see changing in terms of um, the hotel industry? And then also, we have seen this big boom in travel uh, as the economy recovers and COVID goes away to some extent. Do you see that? Like, how durable is that? Is that a relatively permanent shift in behavior? Everyone is so scarred from not being able to travel for a year that they're going to do that much, much more going forward? Or is that a temporary phenomenon of people just making up for the last 12 months or so? One of Joe's friends is a guy named Connorson, and Connor has, has been talking about this theme that he predicts of kind of a, a convergence of business and leisure travel. Mm. Uh, and so in other words, I've got a business trip to Chicago for work. I'm going to stay the weekend and and fly my family in. And, and so kind of the, the, the blurring of the lines between business and leisure. And that is absolutely a trend that we are seeing and we expect to see more so. And I think that when you talk about kind of changes in consumer preferences and, and how do people travel, I think that is something that we will continue to see. Fortunately for us, the midweek business traveler, kind of the road warrior who's on the road 250 nights a year, that's not a target market for us. Uh, and so I don't know that that will ever be back to to those levels, uh, you know, may, maybe with blending in some some leisure traveler or uh, kind of the leisure travel on the weekends, maybe it gets close to it. But I think the marginal trip maybe gets done on on Zoom. A big piece of our business is, is group and corporate group. And so, uh, you know, if Bloomberg's having a all hands meeting in California, maybe they'll host it at an Omni and people are flying in from uh, all over the country to attend this event. I think that a big change that we have seen, which will, I believe, persist probably forever, is a hybrid meeting or a hybrid event. Uh, you know, Tracy, whereas maybe you previously would have flown into New York for an event, you know, from Hong Kong, maybe you'll do that once a year and, and three times a year you'll dial in via Zoom or Microsoft Teams or something like that. You know, it, it presents unique AV challenges for us as to, okay, you have a speaker on the main stage. How is it a good experience for the online attendee? You know, but, but I think that is a change in, in kind of consumer behavior going forward. In terms of the boom in travel, I think that the lack of international options is creating a little bit of a bubble, particularly in the resorts right now. And, and in many of our resorts, which is about a third of our portfolio, we are seeing average rates of five, six hundred dollars a night, uh, which were previously three hundred fifty, four hundred dollars a night. Big average rate, big average rates. Uh, and, and I think in the true luxury kind of Ritz Carlton set, it's not uncommon to see over a thousand dollars a night. So I think that's a little bit of a bubble that will that will pass when the world, quote unquote, opens up. And people can go back to London without quarantining for five days. And but I, I do think that kind of this embrace of uh, you know you've seen it with second homes and 
uh, and like I said, with a lot of our resorts of maybe uh, rural or, or not urban uh, destinations, I think is certainly here from a mid for a, a midterm. Who knows long longer term? But where people just say, I, I want to get out of the city, I want to go to the Hamptons, or I want to go to the beach in South Carolina, or you know, I, I think that that kind of the I mentioned earlier the introspection that people have had during COVID. I think it has resulted in a lot of people saying, I want to enjoy my life and I want to have fun and travel and, and kind of be in relaxing settings and not not just kind of grind it out in an urban setting all the time. And so I, I think that maybe the rates right now are a little bit of a bubble just because there's so much demand. And literally we were we were laughing one of our hotels. We were, we were trying to limit occupancy at a number of our hotels just so we can try to provide a good experience for people. <laughs> and and so what we did originally is is uh, we we raised the rate to like uh, nine hundred ninety nine dollars a night. Just hey, if somebody wants to pay it, great, you know. But otherwise, we're we're kind of good with the number of rooms we have sold right now. And and it was the week before the weekend, and that we did this. And and literally that day, we sold like fifteen rooms at thousand dollars a night. And 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 so we're we're kind of shaking our heads, looking at each other, saying there's there's really almost no price too high at some of these resort destinations. And, and it's almost comical pricing, right? Because th- there's no way, I hate to say it, that we can really deliver a great experience if you're paying $1,000 a night and we're running 90% occupancy, or at least an expectation, an experience that meets your expectation if you're paying $1,000 a night. And, and so I think that, I do think that some of that uh, pricing is a bubble that we'll see uh, recede next year, but I don't think it's going to go back to 2019 pricing. So maybe being up, maybe you're up 10 to 15% instead of being up 30%. Versus 19. You know, I think this is almost, uh, you know, I think we've touched on almost all the ground. We've been talking for a while. Last thing, you know, I just want to like revisit this question, like the new nature of travel. This, I heard the word leisure once, which is like the ugliest word I've ever heard. <laughs> but, you know, you mentioned like business and leisure travel combining. I hope leisure never becomes like a word people use, but I've heard it. Leisure. Blah. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Ugh, it's terrible. <laughs> But, you know, just thinking about like, so what is it like, what can you do? You know, you're like cognizant of this phenomenon. Like we're maybe like someone like, you know, they don't travel as much for work. And but when they do, they want to like bring their family or make it more of an event. How does that how do you how do you take advantage of that? Or how does uh, sort of like the services that the hotel offers or the promotions change in light of this changing behavior? Yeah, so so it it all gets down to. We call, we call it kind of local programming. Hmm. If it's getting a local band to play on the weekend, or if it's if it's kind of a family-oriented resort, having some sort of family game night or, you know, obstacle course, or, uh, you know, we've had conversations with, I don't know if you, if you all have heard of Dude Perfect, you know, but it's, a, it's kind of a YouTube phenomenon. You should check it out. But um, it, it's all guys who literally try to do fun stunts hmm. uh and, and it's it's throwing basketballs the length of the court and seeing if they can make it etc uh and and so it, it's interactive engaging programming on on site at our hotels uh and and what can you do that at an omni that maybe you couldn't do elsewhere and can we do a golf clinic can we do you know have some speaker come in and on, on mental health or, or wellness and at a macro level if, if every hotel tried to do something like that, you know, that it, it, it kind of becomes like a, if you're an actor right now and Netflix is calling you and Amazon's calling you and Apple TV's calling you, it's kind of, you know, you can name your price. I, I think it'll be interesting to see 
it, it kind of opens up a new sector of, of the gig economy for, for folks to, to do local programming and or local experiences. And if you want a tour of the bourbon distillery or we, we want to be able to offer uh, those options to people, you know, if, if they choose to embrace the, the leisure we can't. We, we got to stop using that word. We're going to like manifest it into <laughs> yeah. it. it was, I regret ever having even mentioned that. Hey, what, one interesting thing that y'all may enjoy, and uh, Tracy, I enjoyed your uh, trying to ship a teddy bear from Hong Kong episode, mm. um, but it's, it's just kind of supply chain disruption. And when we renovate a hotel, we get a lot of our dressers and kind of bedside tables from, from Asia, hair dryers, mattresses, you name it. When, when the ports are backed up in L.A., you know, it becomes an operational challenge for us. And so it, it's, it's more just kind of, again, interesting anecdotes for you all. We, we could not get hair dryers in our company huh. through our existing vendor about a month ago. And, and so, you know, we're trying to find different vendors and make sure the spec is commercial grade. And, um, and, and so it's, it's just interesting kind of the ramifications yeah. of of kind of all these sh- shipping things that I've, I've enjoyed listening to on, on odd lots. Can I just ask, this is something that I always wondered about the hotel industry, but I mean, I'm assuming everything is standardized in the room. So you must buy in massive bulk from a single supplier. So I, I guess in many ways, your supply chain is even more concentrated and more susceptible to issues than somewhere else. I, I don't know if I'm phrasing that right, but I'm just imagining, you know, if you have a hairdryer in every room, it's going to be the same hairdryer. And if there's an issue with that supplier, then that's a big problem for you. Or do you have like a stockpile of hair dryers in the basement somewhere that you keep just in case? It, it's an issue. Now, now, fortunately, kind of steady state, right? We have, we have about 20,000 hotel rooms in our company. So 20,000 hair dryers, and, and those are not breaking we're not buying 20,000 a month right. or a year or anything like that. You know, it's, it's more kind of in a replacement cycle. However, uh, we just, in the middle of COVID, we had uh, two hotels under construction, kind of brand new hotels, one in Oklahoma City and one in Boston. And the one in Oklahoma City, 600 rooms, one in Boston's about 1,100 rooms. You know, it's not as maybe... a, a acute of a, of a problem as if we we're trying to order 20,000 hair dryers. But, but even, you know, the steady state, if, if 5% of our hair dryers are breaking, you know, we're buying a thousand over the course of a year. Um, and, and so you have kind of the replacement plus the new build uh, purchasing and, and yeah, you know, it, it, it's challenging. And a lot of our suppliers are saying, you know, certain it, it's challenge uh, to get goods from Asia but it's, it's almost a bigger challenge to get it distributed via tr- via trucks, you know, with the driver shortage that's in, that's in the States. And so uh, that's almost a bigger issue is getting it to, and, and some of our resorts are in remote destinations, right? And Hot Springs, Virginia, or Mount Washington up in New Hampshire. And, um, you know, and so those those remote destinations become, become a challenge. Well, Kurt, that was a... Uh... Fantastic. I always love getting to speak to people that are right there uh, in the operational side of it. And uh, I learned a lot talking to you. So thank mm. you for coming on Odd Lot. Yeah, well, uh, it's been a, been a blast. And uh, thanks again for having me. Absolutely. Take care, Kurt. Thanks, Kurt. That was really good.
Yeah, I think actually these are like my favorite <laughs> episodes. Actually, I like all our episodes equally. They're like our children. <laughs> but I do think those where you just get like really in the weeds, like, you know, it's like the hair, the detail about the hair dryers yeah. or the locations of some uh, hotels being harder to get, all those things. I just find like super interesting and like understanding this economy right now, it's kind of like a puzzle and each new episode like this sort of fills in a few more details. Yeah, well, I find them, they're sort of like crash courses in individual industries or niches of the economy. And you're sort of learning more about the natural or the usual state of the business by contrasting it with everything that's going wrong at the moment. So I certainly learned a lot from that. I thought some of Kurt's thoughts on things that are permanent shifts in either labor yeah. supply or consumer behavior, that was really interesting. Like the idea that going forward, we might all be paying for daily housekeeping service or the idea that hotels are seriously looking at ways to break up the eight hour uh, work shift. That's yeah. really fascinating and a big change. That is super interesting, like this idea that it's like, well, maybe someone just does like a three hour shift mm. or something like that. And the way he talked about it, it does sound like it's going to some of it's like really is it going to be permanent or thinking like, you know, is like his point. It's like, well, you can like maybe hire workers from a temp agency and you pay them twenty five dollars an hour or something like that. But that is only like a bridge solution. Mm-hmm. Like, OK, th- or it's not a bridge solution. It's a solution predicated on the assumption that we return to something resembling pre-crisis normal. But if you don't think that the pre-crisis normal is going to come back, then like a, a temp solution is not the answer. And so like thinking about things like what can you do on student debt or what can you think about uh, getting yeah. people onto a better career track faster? All of that becomes like, oh, this could be like a you know fundamental change in how the labor relations work. Yeah. And I mean, when you do hear stuff like that, like helping out on student debt, um, smaller shifts, uh, wage increases, it does make you think that maybe the power is shifting slightly in favor of yeah. labor. So, I, I mean, that would be an absolutely massive change for America, uh, probably one that it's still reasonable to be very skeptical of. But like there are definitely glimmers of it in, in that conversation. Yeah, totally. And then, of course, you combine that with consumption changes, mm. the, you know, business and leisure. Um, <laughs> you know, I think like I forget it was like one of our episodes. I don't know. Maybe it was like the one about like the Black Death or something. It's like things are going to change. And I don't think we like re- yeah. we can only guess. Like right now, I think we're still just in the guessing phase. But, you know, I think like there's a reasonable chance that like the sort of like ripple effects of this will be feeling it uh, years from now in ways that maybe we don't realize at first. And then we're like, oh, this really turned into a fundamental change in how society works. Yeah. I mean, you're getting glimpses of it, like I said, and there's probably a ton of money to be made if you can guess right, like guess correctly what is and what isn't um, a permanent change. Like people are going to make fortunes off of um, getting that right. All right. um, Shall we leave it there? Yeah, let's leave it there. Okay. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts on Twitter, Francesca Levy at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. 